It does surprise me sometimes that as Christians, we struggle with joy. While there are obvious reasons why we might struggle to find joy, the days are evil, as Paul said. Our desires are often left unfilled in the world, and we've said goodbye to loved ones, and our bodies are, as we all know, growing a little bit older. Yet sometimes, it seems we're afraid of joy, and Christmas, Christmas season, is no exception. We complain about commercialism and happy holidays. We warn each other about the dangers of eating too much, uh, taking another bite, an extra bite into that uh, piece of fudge. We're, we avoid decorating our homes with snowmen and reindeer, and we have to demand that every home has a nativity uh, as we search for the true meaning of Christmas. We cull our Christmas playlist, declaring that joy to the world shouldn't be preceded by jingle bells. And, of course, there's Santa Claus. You want the truth about Santa Claus? Well, I'll give you the truth about Santa Claus. Santa Claus is a vast conspiracy to, to thwart the true meaning of Christmas, right? I mean, rearrange the letters and what do you get? Well, I hope I haven't offended you, and I'm trusting we can laugh a little bit at ourselves this morning. But I do want you to consider that in all our fighting for the true meaning of Christmas, we sometimes miss out on the expressions of Christmas. While our attempts to cut Christmas straight are good, if they're overshadowed, or they sometimes overshadow the, the, the Christian virtue of joy. And if they do, then we have lost our way. To be clear, I'm not saying that Christian joy can be found in tinsel, fresh-baked cookies, Mariah Carey tunes, or Santa Claus. I'm not saying that. Quite the contrary, Christian joy can only be found by accepting that it was Jesus who was born into this world as Savior, Christ, and Lord. And Christmas is exclusively about that truth. I mean, it is called Christmas, after all. What I am suggesting is that if searching for the true meaning of Christmas can steal away our joy, which it does at times, what if such weightier things like the loss of a loved one, the trial of chronic illness, the compounding prayers offered for an unbelieving son or daughter, the challenges of raising kids in this world, of work, of disappointments, such things, if you can relate to any of those things this Christmas season, then it's my goal to show you how, or to show you this morning, how the message of Christmas is designed to give us joy. It's designed to give us joy. And not a light and flimsy joy, but a durable joy, a weighty joy. And so, we'll see this morning, the message of Christmas gives us three reasons to rejoice this season. Three reasons to rejoice this season, and that's my goal this morning. In verses 8 through 14 of Luke chapter 2, we'll see how the most significant message, the most significant message is delivered to the most common people, shepherds in a field keeping watch over their flocks at night. Look at chapter 2, verse 8 there. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock at night. Shepherds are often characterized as the downtrodden and despised of society, they were despised by the religious leaders because their work prevented them from observing the law. They had to work on Sunday, you might say. 
they had to work on the Sabbath. And so they couldn't participate in law keeping. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders, they despised them. It's even said that they were, dis- they were so dismissed that they couldn't even give, um, they couldn't give testimony in court. Now, one of the problems with that view, that they were downtrodden and despised of society, is that most of the historical evidence for that view is drawn from documents written four to 500 years after these dates. It's much later, that, that evidence. Another problem with this view is that the occupation of a shepherd isn't portrayed as all that bad in the Bible. I mean, if you think about it, Israel's leaders were shepherds, Abraham, Moses, and David all spent a portion of their lives as shepherds. And these are the three most significant figures to an Israelite. God himself is referred to as the shepherd of Israel. Psalm 80, verse 1, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. In the New Testament as well, shepherding is portrayed in a positive light. Church leaders are characterized, they're called to shepherd the flock of God. Therefore, I think characterizing the shepherd, uh, shepherds as the downtrodden and despised of this world might be a little overbaked. That being said, shepherds do represent the lowly and humble of the world. And this fits very well with Luke's gospel and the themes of, of Luke's gospel. Something that Luke does emphasize in his gospel is the kindness of God toward the less privileged, the weak, and the rejected. God's kindness is revealed to the disabled and the sick, to the Samaritan and the Gentile, to children and tax collectors, and here, to shepherds. Therefore, it's altogether fitting that Luke would record this account of the angels coming to the shepherds and delivering the good news of Jesus' birth. And not so much because the shepherds were salty people, but because they were common people. They were normal people. They were surprisingly common people. And so here we have the first reason why we should express joy this Christmas season. Rejoice! The message of Christmas is for common folk. Is for common folk. Now, before you accuse me of calling you average or unexceptional common people, let me explain through the Apostle Paul. You remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Paul writes and says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. What's the point? God's message isn't designed for some elite class of people. Jesus didn't save the Corinthians because they were some special community. I mean, we've been reading through the book of 1 Corinthians as a church, and we know that. We can see that in the reading of it. Quite the contrary, they weren't a special community of people. So we have to admit, as Paul did, 
Few were of noble birth. MacArthur writes, God is not looking for some Phi Beta Kappas to save and to do his work, nor is he looking for millionaires or famous athletes or entertainers or statesmen. It was Jesus who once prayed, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you've revealed them to who? To little children, Jesus says. Psalm 8, 2 says, Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. One commentator said, The sound of the children is concrete evidence of God's fortress on earth. The sound of opposition is silenced by the babbling and chatter of children. What a contrast, what a king. Likewise, the sound of the shepherds is concrete evidence of God's fortress on earth. A simple, uneducated shepherd who believes and responds to the word of the Lord is immeasurably wiser than a brilliant PhD who scoffs at God. I love to see brilliant minds come to Christ. I'm sure you do as well. And there are brilliant Christians, don't get me wrong. Yet, I think we, we have all known brilliant people who have been, you might say, blinded by their brilliance. So here's a reason to rejoice this Christmas season. The most important message ever uttered from the heavens wasn't delivered to those in ivory towers. It was delivered to shepherds, everyday common people, common folk like us. And what was that message? We'll look at verses 9 through 12. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord, the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. We're not surprised that the shepherds were afraid. What a terrifying sight. You can imagine an angel tearing into this world and to appear drenched, to appear saturated in the glory of God, the glory of God booming from this angel. No doubt they were filled with great fear. In the blackness of the night, I would guess the immediate presence of the glory of God the brilliant and impressive light, such brilliant and impressive light, would have sent their pupils into shock and their arms flailing to cover their faces. And then a voice, Fear not! Behold! I bring you good news of great joy. The, the angel says, well, That will be for all the people. For all the people. Notice right away, the message is for all people. The word Luke, Luke, the word Luke uses for people here is one often used to describe the people of Israel, and that shouldn't surprise us. Salvation is from the Jews, you remember Jesus said. And yet, a man named Simeon, look over at Luke chapter 2, verses 30 to 32, a man named Simeon says this, For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This is Jesus. He is a light of revelation to Gentiles and glory 
to the people of Israel. Didn't, Matthew, didn't Jesus say in Matthew 28, 19 in the Great Commission that we were to make disciples of all nations? Again, God's message was neither delivered to the elite nor is it for the elite exclusively. God's message was delivered to common folk and is for common folk. Even better, God's message is for everybody. It's for all people. God didn't hold a board meeting before sending his angels, his angel, in order to determine a market strategy that best accommodates a certain section of people. God didn't evaluate how the message might be effective, most effective among a certain gender, ethnicity, or social class. On the contrary, what God did was he, he drew a circle around all people. He drew a circle around all people and said, these are my target audience. This is who my message is for. Red, yellow, black, and white, all are precious in God's sight. The angel said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And what was this good news of great joy? Verse 11 for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Three things about this good news. The first is this. The good news comes at the right time. These events are not a distant reality. The good news of Jesus' birth has come even now. That's what the text says. The angel said, for unto you is born this day. Luke loves the word today. He uses it all the time in his gospel. If you were to do a word search, you'd see that. It shows up all over the place. Some examples. After Jesus read Isaiah 61 in the synagogue, Luke records Jesus saying, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. After Jesus healed a paralyzed man, Luke tells us in chapter 5, verse 26, And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Luke 19, 5, Jesus told Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down from the sycamore tree, for I must stay at your house today. Luke loves this word today. Luke likes the, the word today because it stresses the currentness of God's saving events. Luke understands that there's no better, better time than right now. There's no better time than the present. If an angel of the Lord can de declare at the birth of Jesus, today your Savior is born in the city of David, then we can appeal to others in our day, as Paul did. Remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 and 2. Do, do not receive the good news in vain, Paul said. For God says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now, remember this, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. The gospel message, message always comes with urgency. It always comes with the expectation that a response would be, would be taken up in the moment. It's a call to believe in that moment. It's not a call to think about something. It's a call to repent and believe. The message comes with urgency. And so the good news comes at the right time. Number two, the good news comes in the right way. The birth of Jesus occurs in the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. A little context here is important. 
You know, if you were with us last week, that the prophet Micah predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. We shouldn't be surprised then that God in His sovereignty directed Joseph and Mary to the village of Bethlehem in His perfect plan. Look over at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and we see this. In those days, it says, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You see there, God moved in the heart of the most powerful man in the known world. He moved in his heart to get Joseph and Mary exactly where they needed to be for that child to be born in Bethlehem. God in his sovereignty did that. They were exactly where they needed to be at ju in just the right, and, and so this happened in just the right way, just as Scripture said. Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And so the good news comes in the right time, and the good news comes in the right way, and the good news comes in the right titles. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We have three titles given for Jesus Notice the combination of them, and we've heard these titles before. They're all over the Bible, but only here do they appear, all three appear so close together in one sentence. We know that a Savior is a deliverer. A Savior is someone who saves us from peril. It's fitting that Jesus would be called a Savior. You remember, this is what the angel told Joseph to name him Jesus, for it says he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21, Jesus came to deliver us from sin. This smacks against the notion that Jesus came to the world to improve our marriages, to give us better jobs, to deliver us from addiction, or that believing in Jesus is the ticket to some otherworldly kind of flourishing. While being a disciple of Jesus might lead to a better marriage, it might lead us into a better job, more success at work, at work, freedom from addiction. It might lead us to flourishing, human flourishing. These are not the reasons Jesus came to the world. These are simply byproducts of salvation. Jesus came to the world to save us from our sins. He didn't leave heaven in the very presence of God to address the symptoms of our sin. He came to address the cause he stooped from heaven to address the source of the problem. Jesus came into this world to address sin and guilt. His second title is Christ. This title is the New Testament version for Messiah. The title means anointed one. It speaks of someone placed in a high office, worthy of high honor. Maybe you've heard the distinctions about Jesus. He is a prophet, priest, and king. Maybe you've heard that distinction Jesus is anointed as God's final prophet, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Jesus is the one who mediates between us and God, between God's people and, and uh, between us and God as the high priest, Hebrews 3, 1. Jesus is the king of kings. He sits upon the throne of David. He will reign forever and ever. 
Revelation 17, 4. So Jesus is a Savior. He is Christ, and He is Lord. Yes, Jesus holds a position of leadership, and yes, He holds a position of authority. But that is saying too little. Jesus is Lord. He is God. And this confession, Jesus is Lord, is the central belief of Christianity, is it not? We, we, we can't become Christians until we can confess Jesus is Lord, until we believe that Jesus is Lord. Neither can you be a Christian unless you believe Jesus is Lord, nor will you be a Christian until you confess that Jesus is Lord. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's necessary. It's a necessary aspect of salvation. If you haven't come so far as to say and to believe that Jesus is Lord, then you're not a Christian. You have to make that step in order to be a Christian. Jesus said in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Well, what does it mean when Jesus says I am he? He's saying I am God. Unless you believe that I am Yahweh, that I am God, then you will die in your sins. So here, here we have the most wonderful news come at just the right time and in just the right way and with just the right titles. And the evidence, the proof of such things, is incomprehensible. It's incomprehensible. Look at verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The proof of such things is that the shepherds will find a baby has been placed inside a feeding trough. That's the sign. That's the proof. Daryl Bach writes, what is amazing is not that the child is wrapped up, but who the child is and where he is. One hardly expects to find Messiah in an animal room. One would expect a palace. But Messiah's humble and common origins fit nicely with the task that he shall bear for his people, including especially, he says, the humble, hungry, and the poor. Messiah's life will contain an unusual bookend for a king. Since he was born in an animal room and he will die, he says, with robbers. End quote. It's no wonder then in verse 13 that an, an army of angels show up. An army of angels show up. Look at verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude or an army of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The declaration reveals how interested the angels are in salvation, how interested they are in God's plan of salvation. Jesus said in Luke 15, 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no re repentance. The angels long to, to see people come to know the Lord, to add more voices to the praise and worship of God. The declaration also reveals that people will benefit from being drawn to Christ. Peace will be found with those whom he is pleased. Not pleased in the sense that he's pleased with their good works, 
or their, that they've given their best effort, but pleased in the sense that his favor rests, rests on them. MacArthur says, quote, salvation peace belongs to those to whom God is pleased to give it. It is not a reward for those who have goodwill, but a gracious gift to those who are the objects of God's goodwill. Let me summarize the first point here that we've taken up. The fact that God decided to share the most amazing salvation news with shepherds reveals that God is concerned for common folk. And this truth is supported by the fact that God's salvation message is for all people. Thus, first off, we have good reason to rejoice this Christmas season because the message of Christmas is for common folk. It's a message for common people like us. Rejoice. The message of Christmas is for common folk. Second reason to express joy this Christmas season is found in verses 15 through 19. Look at that. Verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary... It says, treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. What I want to emphasize in this section, in these verses, is that the message was clear. The message was clear. And so the second reason to rejoice this Christmas season, so rejoice, the message of Christmas is clear. It's a clear message. We shouldn't overlook what happens in verse 15 the shepherds deliberated about what happened. They understood the message from heaven. This reinforces a, a unique and important reality about our Lord. Simply that God's message is clear. In speaking about God's message or his revelation, theologians sometimes use a fancy word, perspicuity. Maybe you've heard that word before. Perspicuity, it simply means clear or understandable. God's message comes with perspicuity. It comes with clarity. It's intended to be understood. It's no wonder God uses the language of the Hebrews in the Old Testament, and he uses the, the common Greek language in the New Testament. That's what Koine Greek is. It's common Greek. It's not some special kind of Greek. It's the normal language that the people used. Understanding that God's message is intended to be clear protects us against esoteric or secret methods of interpretation. We don't need a, a Bible code or some clever allegorical tools to interpret Scripture. This was the case with the message delivered to the, the, the shepherds. They heard the message and they understood the, the message. They discussed it and they took action. And that was based on the clear, plain meaning of God's revelation. Now, making this point, I'm not saying that we don't have to study Scripture and that they're not, there are not hard things to be understood or to be found out in Scripture. You remember the Bereans from Acts 17, they studied the Scriptures because there, there are deep truths and deep mysteries to be found in Scripture. Not all parts are easy to understand. That being said, the overall message from God, the overall message from God, whether found in Scripture or delivered through an angel, is clear. God intends to communicate with us. He doesn't intend to hide things from us. He wants us to know. That's why it's called revelation. 
It's a revealing of something so we would know what the truth is. And this is an old truth. It's an old truth because it's a truth that's derived in who God is, that he wants to communicate with his people. Remember what Moses told the old uh, Israel. He encouraged Israel with this truth. He says this in Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. And he says this, remember, at the end of the, the Pentateuch, the end of the law, the end of the five books, he, he makes this statement about the clarity of God's word and what God has commanded his people. Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. For this commandment, this message that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us to bring it back to us, that you may hear it and do it? Neither, he says, is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over to the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? It's not too, too, too high up and it's not too far over there. For us to understand what God is saying, Moses is telling Israel. He says, but the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. God intended to communicate with his people. He's always intended to communicate with his people. Whether it's Old Testament Israel or the New Testament or the angels speaking to the shepherds, communicating clearly what was going on. And this clarity of such a message, created a chain reaction in this text. Verse 16, the shepherds go and find the child. Verse 17, the shepherds tell Mary and Joseph and anyone who might listen what happened to them. You can imagine what that sounded like. Verse 18 tells us that those who heard the story wondered at what the shepherds told them. And finally, Luke tells us that Mary did more than wonder. It says that she treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. Of course, I don't think Mary was questioning the validity of such things. I don't think that's what this is trying to communicate. An angel had already visited her. An angel had visited her husband in a dream. And I mean, she just gave birth and she was a virgin. So she wasn't questioning the validity of all of this. She understood it was real. To treasure all these things means to reflect on what has taken place, not to question whether or not something took place. I can only imagine what kind of reflection might be needed surrounding such events. You can imagine if Mary had a journal, it would have been packed full of things that she would have written about. Luke tells us that she pondered in her heart. She pondered. The idea here is that she mulled over these events in her mind. She was throwing things together, capturing things, all the while letting one thing explain the other. Like a dryer, all these events with their explanations in detail tumbled round and round in her mind. And treasuring and pondering the past is one thing, but what about the future? What questions lie ahead for Mary? Where do we go from here? Is an angel going to come and direct us to what's next? How am I supposed to raise this child? Angels appeared in the sky. These shepherds are here. This is Messiah King. I'm a nobody. I'm a teenager. What am I supposed to do? Will people find out that the baby came before I was married? What would they say about that? What would they do to us? As I mentioned, God's message may be clear, but there are deep mysteries within his message. Look over again at Simeon. I quoted him earlier. Simeon's word is in verse 34. This is chapter 2 as well. Verses 34. 
35. And Simeon blessed them, this is the family there, and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I say that's something to be pondering these words from Simeon. What is the meaning of all of this? There's certainly a mystery here, but there's so much that God has revealed. You think way back, we, we talked about Genesis 3.15 just two weeks ago. I mean, even there, there's a promise that that seed is going to bear a, some kind of affliction. He will crush his head, but the serpent will harm his heel, bruise his heel, it says. It was predicted through and through in the Old Testament there would be some kind of suffering that Messiah would encounter. Some pain would be afflicted upon him. When Jesus comes, he actually makes it very clear. Mark eight thirty one, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. This is early on. Jesus is testifying that he will be killed. And then he says, and after three days, rise again. Certainly there's a mystery, but there's clarity as to what Jesus plans to do, what God intends to do. I suppose understanding that message is one thing, but accepting it is an altogether different thing. What about the shepherds? Did they accept the message? Well, we have good, good reason, very good reason, to believe that they did accept the message. They understood it and accepted what was happening. Look at verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. With this verse, we're given a third reason to rejoice this Christmas season. We must rejoice because the message of Christmas is for common folk. It's for people like us. We must also rejoice because the message of Christmas is clear. God has come down and told us the message of salvation. And finally, we must rejoice for the message of Christmas is convincing, is convincing. The shepherds returned to their flocks, not with skepticism, not with skepticism, but with assurance their faith was confirmed and deepened. God's message had come to common people. It was clear and it was convincing. All of this led these shepherds into pure joy. Pure joy. I mean, this verse really sets the mood for the entire text, doesn't it? It's, it's in a text that you read with a smile on your face. You're excited about it. Joy is, is threaded all the way back up through this text just because of this verse. We see these shepherds returning, leaping and praising God and, and singing about what God is doing. The entire passage is buoyed up by joy. It's for good reason that we speak and sing of joy at Christmas time. What better reason to rejoice than this? For unto us, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is wonderful news. News to, to take up and to have joy over. Now if we work backwards through the text here, through these points, think about this with me. 
If the shepherds returned from Bethlehem and they glorified and praised God, as this verse says, and they did so based on what they heard and saw, and what they heard and saw was in perfect agreement with what the angels said, they saw the sign, well, then God's message was clear. It was a clear message. And if God proclaimed a clear message to everyday shepherds out in a field, keeping watch over their flocks at night, well, then God's message is for common people, for common folk. And if God's message is for common folk, and Paul said, not many are wise, not many are powerful, but not many are of noble birth, well, then chances are that God's message is for you. It's for us. God's message is for us. And so the logic says we're here. This is for us. And this message is one that drives us towards pure joy. And not the kind of joy the world offers around the Christmas season. The world offers food and drink, sex and alcohol, new slippers, a new car. All of these things will will fade away by January. And we know that. By the, end of the, by the end of January, what did you get for Christmas? I don't know. Maybe you might remember a new car. But most of us can't remember because the joy fades. The author Sarah Zilstra helps us here. She says, Christian, uh, Christian joy is much weightier, more durable. It comes from a clean conscience washed by, by Jesus' blood from confidence in a future God controls, and from knowing we cannot be separated from a God who is working everything for our good. It's a different kind of joy. Psalm 4-7 says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. But this weighty, durable joy isn't morose or sullen. It's not introspective and humorless. Not at all. Christian joy is fun. Psalm 32, 11 says, shout for joy. You remember David dancing? He danced for the Lord. Listen to Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter, it says. They saw Zion come together, and their mouths were filled with laughter. They took up joy. Their tongues with shouts of joy, it says. After all, Sarah Zilstra again says, quote, Our creator is the one who invented jokes. I don't know if you ever think about that. He invented jokes. He invented belly laughing. He invented parties. He gave us friends and fellowship, dance moves, the ability to come up with a perfectly timed one-liner. All these are good, and they're from the Lord. God has designed these things. Christian joy is fun. Now, sure, the world can dance. The world can laugh. The world, has, the world can enjoy family and friendships. But they will never know what it's like to dance and to laugh and to enjoy family and friendships with a heart full of deep joy in being right with God. And so when we laugh, when we shout for joy, when we celebrate with our family and friends, 
we can do those things with so much more deep, abiding joy because we have peace with God. Peace is in our heart. And so we can really sing for joy. That ought to put a smile on your face this Christmas season. And so let us take our cues from the shepherds. Let us take our cues from the shepherds this Christmas season. Let's return to our work. Let's return to our retirement, many of you, glorifying and praising God for all that we have seen and all that we have heard. Rejoice, for God's message is convincing. Rejoice, for God's message is clear. Rejoice, for God's message is for common folk like us. Amen.